All right. Well, we are starting a new series uh, this morning, and it's pretty exciting. It's a it's a pretty fun one. Uh, we are talking about sexuality. Like, come on, who loves talking about that, right? Exactly. Yeah. Cool. Um, I'm excited. I think this is a it's a controversial topic. It's a taboo topic. Oh, we're saying sex in church. Whoa, right? Like it's it's not often that we have the privilege of talking about this, but it's something that I think we should talk about. Um, and that Sean is, um, I think, bold um, in talking about this. Um, so um, yeah, let's just continue and encourage Sean and, and thank him for the leadership that he um, is. Um, providing for our church. Um, so you may see this around your bottoms. Um, hopefully you're not sitting on one. Um, if you are, maybe check underneath there. Um, these are a awesome resource. Um, we have discussion questions. If you're doing a life group, there it is again, do life groups. Um, and you get to do these questions during those if you want to. Um, but there's questions on there. Um, there's a memory verse. We're taking it um, old school and um, doing some memory verses. Um, and there's also a cool option for um, texting in your questions. Now, um, let's bombard Sean with all these questions that we have, right? There's a number that you can text um, about anything that is pertaining to this series, anything about sexuality that you have a question about. Please take advantage of this. Um, it's a really awesome opportunity where you get to be anonymous and ask any question that you want um, within reason, I guess. Um, but at the end of the any question, um, yeah, there we go. He's, he's uh, testing me there. Um, so um, at the end of this series, we will um, take time to answer your questions. It's not just you're going to ask your questions and they won't be answered. Um, we will do the best of our ability to answer the questions that you uh, submit. And we will do that at the end of the series. We also, at the end of the series, um, have a brave soul come up and recite the memory verse there may or may not be prizes on the line. Um, so um, be memorizing. It's always good to have scripture memorized. Um, so I'm going to read that for us, and then I'm going to read the scripture reading for us today. So here we go. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself, for God bought you with a high price. So you must honor God with your body. And that is found in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. That is your memory verse for this series, okay? Keep working on it. All right, now I'm going to read the scripture reading. This is where we're going to hang out in our message today. Um, so it will be on the screen if you uh, want to open up your Bibles. It's found in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, 12 through 20. If you need to close your eyes, um, that's what I like to do um, so I can concentrate on uh, these um, impactful words that we are listening to this morning. Here we go, folks. Starting in verse 12, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Everything is per permissible for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy them both. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. By his power, God raised the Lord from the dead and he will raise us also. Do you even, do you, sorry, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I then take the members of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? 
For it is said, the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in the spirit. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a man commits are outside his body. But he who sins sexually sins against his own body. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? Whom you have received from God, you are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Well done, Tyler. Good stuff. And uh, how you doing, church? Happy Labor Day weekend. And uh, it's good to be here. And um, yeah, I'm just as uh, anxious as you are to see where this goes over the next few weeks, huh? Talking about sex. Yeah? It's awkward for you and it's awkward for me, right? Let's just be honest. Um, and I would say over these next few weeks, um, we want anybody to feel comfortable in this space. And I also know that parents, sometimes we got little ones in the room, I want you to feel comfortable. Like, that's at your discretion. Uh, but things might get a little spicy in here. So uh, you may take advantage of our next-gen ministries uh, <laughs> during these next few weeks if you feel more comfortable. Uh, but I just, I, I want to be honest with you. I think that these next few weeks are going to be relevant to uh, the folks that are single, the folks that are married, the folks that are young, the folks that are old, the folks that are parents. Parents, don't we just have that looming over our heads, right? I got three kids, uh, 11, 9, almost 10, and 6. And April and I were talking this week. How do we talk to our kids about sex? We're the pastor. We should know. We should have this dialed in. And you get a little nervous. Like, how do I talk to my kids about sex? Because as we know, it's more than just anatomy, and it's more than just biology. We're talking about identity. We're talking about the way people identify themselves and see themselves and and see the world, and it's so much more than that than just, hey, kiddo, this is how your body works. Um, it, it, It is something that is so personal and so intertwined And it also is a conversation that our culture is having, and we see it all over social media and the news. And guess what? That is not why we're having this conversation. We are not having this just because it is a buzz topic in our culture. Because I am not going to just always react to what our culture is talking about. What we need to be doing is focusing on what God's word says and allow that to be the basis for what we're here to do. And guess what? 2,000 years ago, The Apostle Paul was used by God to bring up some very complicated conversations to the early church. So it's just as awkward as you feel right now. Think about the Corinthians who had to read this. And they didn't hear the tone and inflection of Paul. They heard him say, don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Like, think about how they process that, right? But for 2,000 years, the church has been complicated on a variety of different topics. That's why we've been spending the year looking at 1 and 2 Corinthians on all these different themes and mini-series that we've been doing, but, but sexuality is one of those things, and we've got to understand, I hope we understand over the course of these weeks, sex is not evil. Let me take a deep breath. Sex is a good thing. Sex is designed by God. Isn't that weird to think sometimes? Like, we don't think about that. Like, God created sex. The devil didn't create sex, no matter what your grandma said, right? <laughs> That's the devil's playground. No, it's not. That's the Lord's playground. He created it in Genesis 2. Here we go. He created us with sexual desires and sexuality and all of that. And I hope that as awkward as this feels, we understand that these are important things for us to talk about. Because I think, as we'll see, 
as followers of Christ, we want to develop a sexuality and a sexual ethic and a sexual paradigm and a sexual lifestyle and identity that's centered around not culture, not tradition, not personality, but centered around the gospel. Put Jesus at the center of your sexuality and see what happens. Now, for some of you, you're like, what? Well, let's talk about that. Because as we look at this section, starting in verse 12, uh, we see Paul confronting the early church because their views on sexuality were being shaped by culture. Does that sound familiar? No? Yes. Yes. Just as it was happening then, it's happening today, right? Our views on sexuality are being shaped by culture. Verse 12, he says, everything is permissible for me, but not everything is beneficial. Paul's having this like rhetorical conversation with himself. So you see these quotes. He's quoting these like, cultural mantras, you know, the you-do-yous and the YOLOs of its time. Everything is permissible for me. Everything is permissible for me. Food for the stomach and stomach for the food. And so Paul's calling these things out. He's pointing these things out and saying, yeah, not everything is good for you, though. And just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do something. Or get an amen to that. Just because you can do something doesn't mean that you should do something. And then he gets into these ideas of, of breaking through culture because that culture at the time where the Corinthians were living and the culture that they're living in, they developed this paradigm of sexual freedom. And we think, oh, the ancient church, they didn't struggle with the same sexual innuendos and messaging and culture influence and sexual freedom and expression that we do. They, they had a cultural philosophy that said sex was just a bodily instinct. It was primal. It was something that you just did, and it was instinctual. And they believed that sexual activity was just a bodily function, like eating and drinking. So if you're hungry, you eat. If you're thirsty, you drink. And if you desire, you indulge. Because they had this cultural philosophy at the time there in Greece that the material and the physical were not interconnected. That my physical body and my spiritual self were disconnected, and so I could do anything I want in the physical without affecting the future of my spiritual or immaterial, because this part is just going to rot away and die. So they created this understanding and this mindset of this sexual liberty and the sexual freedom and just kind of, you do you, man. Everything's permissible. The stomach the, is for food, and food is for the stomach. The body's for sex, and sex is for the body. And so Paul, right there in verse 13, says the body is not meant for sexual immorality. Now this phrase, sexual immorality, was a phrase in the Greek called pornea. And it's where we get the same word today. I'll give you one guess. Pornography. I didn't give you much time to guess. But that's our Greek lesson for the day. But the ancient church, or the early church in that time, what they did is they took that word pornea, they took that phrase, sexual immorality, and what they did is they ascribed anything outside of the Genesis 2 design fell under that category. So this idea of God creating husband and wife and the exclusive heterosexual covenant of marriage, everything outside of that fell under what they would call sexual immorality. That was the way the early church looked at it and described it and talked about it. And the early church in Corinth was inundated in an over-sexualized culture. Again, we think, oh, simpler times. Can't we all just be back to the early church? How many of you hear people talk about that in church? Right? I wish we could just be like it was back in the Bible times. Because it doesn't look like this at the, at, the, at the front of the text, but when you study it and you, you dig in on it, and I, I, I read some scholars, and there were scholars that joked Corinth would have made Vegas look like Amish community. 
There was promiscuity, there was nudity, there was prostitution, there was homosexuality, there was bestiality, there was sexual liberty, there were orgies. There were sexual activity with minors. There was temples devoted to the goddess of sex, and you would worship that goddess with your body. See, I told you we were getting spicy. <laughs> Earmuffs, no. But that's the culture that they live with, and it was complicated, and it was influencing their views on sex, and, and, and they had developed this identity and this view of sexual freedom, and the buzzword of freedom is big in Corinth, man. They just, the Corinthian church loved that word freedom. Every time Paul talked about freedom, they were almost like Americans. They're like, freedom! I love freedom, right? Freedom's great. Yeah, woo, freedom. I can do anything I want because Jesus came to forgive me of my sins, and Jesus came to set me free, and I'm free to do as I want to do. And Paul's like, wait, 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 wait. That's not the freedom that Jesus came to bring. Jesus wasn't executed and resurrected so that we were free to sin. Let's think about that. Jesus wasn't executed and resurrected so we were free to sin. Instead, we are free from sin, not free to sin. So Paul is challenging their paradigms on sexuality emphasizing how their bodies matter. And we see this in verse 14 through 15. There we go. Verse 14, as he's shifting that paradigm, right, he's addressing the cultural mindset, saying, your body does matter. Verse 14, by his power, God raised the Lord from the dead, and he will raise us also. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ himself? Shall I take that member of Christ and unite them with a prostitute? Never. So Paul's saying, your body matters to God. What you do with your body matters to God. And he does this by introducing the gospel into the conversation. And so he's talking about the future resurrection that we're going to experience. And we see this in 1 Corinthians 15. We talked about this a few weeks ago uh, during our summer series. And this idea that eventually our body is going to be transformed and renewed and resurrected to something new. Woo, that's going to be incredible. That's the future. That's what's coming, right? It's not just going to be annihilated to dust. So God says your body does matter. Jesus is going to resurrect your body. It's going to be something new and imperishable and heavenly, but it's still, yeah, it's your body. Think about what Jesus said about loving God. He said to love the Lord your God, finish the sentence for those that have been in church a long time, with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength strength. Love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. I don't know. I got into like little kid mode teaching. Our bodies matter because our body is a physical representation of Jesus. We're described as the hands and feet of Jesus, ambassadors of Jesus. He calls us members of Jesus. We're part of the body of Christ. And you don't take that and unite it with a prostitute. You don't take that and just do whatever you want with it. Being a part of the body of Christ, he talks about the unity that we experience when we say yes to Jesus. He, he expresses these ideas of unity in the spirit and that at salvation we are united with Christ. Right? And, and this idea that the body is more than just meant for primal acts of sexuality. And he gets into it in verse 16 and 17. Do you know, do you not know, excuse me, do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? For it is said, 
the two will become one flesh. But he who unites himself with the Lord is one with him in spirit. He's talking about these two different unities that we, we experience. One is the unity that, that occurs uh, in, in sex. The unity of the flesh. We see this in Genesis chapter 2. We see this in Matthew 19 when Jesus talks about marriage. is this idea of two becoming one. They are united in flesh. There is something powerful that happens in the act of sex, in the act of sexuality and sexual actions and behaviors. There's a powerful, bo- a powerful bond between two individuals. And what Paul is getting at, what, what, what Jesus is getting at, what Genesis 2 is getting at is that the only bond that God designed to withstand that pressure, to withstand and be strong enough to handle that bond of intimacy is the bond of marriage. And we're going to talk more about marriage in the coming weeks, but he then talks about unity in the spirit and that at salvation we experience this unity with Jesus. So he talks about unity in the flesh and then unity in the spirit. That by faith, we're united with Christ. We are filled with the Holy Spirit. We develop the mind of Christ. And he talks about us being a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit, which if you aren't in church very long, that feels and sounds a little weird. I'm the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit, of God's Spirit. What does that mean? And in verse 19, this is our scripture memory verse for this series, he says, Don't you, do you not know that your body is a temple the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God. You are not your own. You are bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. So again, he's just continuing to challenge this idea of like, my body doesn't matter. My body doesn't matter. He says, yes, it does. You experience a unity in the flesh. You experience a unity in the Spirit. You experience this, and you are a temple of the Holy Spirit, a dwelling place of God's Spirit. That Jesus said that his Holy Spirit is in you at that moment of salvation, that the Spirit of God, the power of God is within you. And he gives us this imagery of the temple. Think about the temple back in the day, those parts of your Old Testament that you just kind of skip over because it sounds like a big blueprint. And then the columns were this big, and the room was this big, and the things were made of gold, right? Those parts of the Bible, and you're just like, okay, whatever, the temple, Solomon built it, great. But you go and you read that, and you see the way that they viewed the temple as being a dwelling place, a footstool of God's presence from the heavens. It was sacred. It was special. It was pure. It was holy. It was set apart. You didn't just go and do whatever you wanted in the temple. He's saying the, the presence of God dwells in you. It doesn't dwell in this building. This is just a shell. But you, you're not a shell. You're a dwelling place of God's spirit. God's power. And he's pointing out this compatibility or incompatibility that's taken place, this compatibility problem. You've been united with Christ. You've been a a, a housing for the Holy Spirit. Well, there's just certain things you can't participate in, Corinth. We've got to shake things up. We've got to change our paradigms here. And he says this, you are not your own. How How many of us would feel challenged reading that? Your body is not your own. He's confronting this idea of, like, I just get to do whatever I want with my body. It's my body. Don't don't tell me what to do with my body. I'm going to do what I want to do. But he's saying, you are not your own. You are not your own. Then begs the question, who do I belong to? 
Do I belong to the church? Do I belong to my spouse? Do I belong? He points it to, no, you, you belong to Jesus. Your body is not your own. Why? Because Jesus paid a price for it. It says that the Son of Man paid a ransom for all of humanity. The death on the cross, the resurrection, was a payment so that you and I could be in right standing with God in body and soul and mind and spirit. We were bought at a price. Jesus paid that price. I didn't pay that price. You didn't pay that price. You didn't make us right with God. Jesus paid the price for my body. And so what Paul is saying is, your body's not your own. You're more of a borrower, more of a renter. That challenges me. I don't know about you. Like that disrupts some of our thinking. I'm not owned by the church. I'm not owned by people. I'm not owned by government officials or leaders or anything like that. But my body is owned by Jesus. What would it look like to have a, a borrower's perspective towards our bodies? How many of you like lending things out to other people? I have a truck. Let me illustrate what I'm talking about, okay? So it seems like a weird tangent to go on and talk about my truck here. We talk about sex, and now I'm talking about a truck. But let's go there for just a moment, we'll bring it back home. I have a truck, and, and guess what? I am paying the price for that truck. I'm making the payments. I'm insuring it. I'm filling it up with gas. I pay the price. But then, owning a truck, and this is why I was most resistant for so many years, people find out you have a truck, and they want to borrow your truck. Right? And I've developed this mindset. God has blessed me, and I want to bless other people. So if they need it, how about it? And so my truck is open for borrowing if anybody needs a truck, right? To borrow, not to have. <laughs> but I've learned that that's not necessarily the mindset that everybody has. Some people are like, no, that's my stuff. Don't touch it. And I, I you know, you're going to ruin it, whatever. And I understand that when I lend my truck out, Somebody else borrows my truck. It could come back with a McDonald's cup in the cup holder and wood chips in the back, and it could come back with no gas in it. Oh, thank you. That could happen. It, they could get in an accident. That could happen. They could scratch the truck. It would just blend in with the other scratches, but they could scratch my truck. But then recently, I lend my truck, lent my truck, lended? We got it. <laughs> I let somebody borrow my truck. And they used it for hauling some stuff and moving some stuff, and then they gave it back to me, and I got into it, and I noticed something was a little different. It was cleaned. They had detailed the inside of it. They had washed the outside of it. There was no debris in the back of the pickup. They had taken care of my trash, too. And I, I thought about that in the context of this, and I thought, as the person who's paid the price for the truck, their actions as the borrower honored me. It showed their gratitude. It showed their care and their concern. But it also, it, it, it honored me in, in saying, man, I felt respected. I felt cared for. I felt honored in the way that you treated my stuff. And I thought about this in the context of what Paul is saying is that if we viewed our bodies in belonging to Christ and not just ourselves, how would we treat it differently? I'm going to view my body as something that I'm going to honor God with. I want to treat it well. I want to take care of it. I want to use my body to bring glory and honor and respect to the name of Jesus, not just the name of Sean. I have a borrower's mentality on my body. 
I want to honor the one who truly paid the price for my life. And so all of this in his discussion, I believe Paul, what he's doing is pointing us towards a gospel-centered sexuality. I said earlier, what if we put Jesus at the center of our sexuality? What would change? Corinth created a a culture-centered sexuality. A lot of our world today is creating a culture-centered sexuality. And many times, I believe Christians are creating a sexuality and a sexual ethic and a sexual paradigm that is built upon and centered around good things, but not the good news. We're centered around good things and good ideas, but not necessarily centering our sexuality around the good news of Jesus, the gospel. The Corinthian church was centering their, it was a, it seemed like a good idea, sexual freedom, inclusivity, liberty, freedom, all these things sound good on the surface, but then what Paul is exposing is you're not as free as you think. You become captive to the very thing you think is setting you free. And the danger of creating a a sexual identity based around what culture is saying, well, culture is going to change. Culture is going to shift. 2,000 years ago, this is what the church looked like in Corinth. This is what the culture looked like in Corinth, right? And as we all know, there were seasons where culture changed. If it didn't change, we wouldn't have gotten Quakers, right? It changed. Culture changes. Paradigms change if we always base it on that. So what happens is paradigms and pendulums swing, and we're trying to hit a moving target. So as Christians, we try, okay, well, I'm going to create a sexual identity and a sexual ethic and a sexual sexuality about something different than culture. What do I base it on? And we create other things. We create, how many of you can identify this, a, a sexual prosperity gospel. And let me explain. You're like, what? A sexual prosperity gospel, meaning that we build up all of these promises, and if you just comply in all of this, man, your sex life is going to be amazing. I grew up in what was called the purity, youth purity culture. It was a period of time uh, in in youth ministry and church in which books and speakers and conferences were all about purity rings, making purity pledges, standing in front of your church and doing all these things. And I I think at the heart, it was a good thing, right? They're saying, we don't want culture to define our sexuality. We want to stand on the word of God. What had happened, though, the unintended consequences of it is that they began to build this paradigm or the sexual ethic about if you comply right now as a single young person, everything's going to be awesome once you're married. You got all these desires and want to look at porn and you want to masturbate. You want to sleep with your girlfriend or your boyfriend. You want to mess around. You want to do all these things. Just resist. And once you get married, it's all going to go away. It's going to be perfect. And some of you are giggling because you know that's false. That's what we grew up under. If you just do this right now, everything's going to be great. Your spouse is going to be smoking hot. Your husband's going to be ripped to the gills. It's going to be faithful. It's going to be amazing. It's going to be the best ever. Your kids are going to be amazing and healthy and awesome. And what happens when we build our faith on promises that don't come true? It shatters young people. It covers them in shame because they made a mistake with their boyfriend or their girlfriend. It shrouds them in a guilt because the desire to fantasize at a teenage age is just so tough. And every time they would look at porn and every time they would mess up with their significant other of the week, 
They go to youth group, and they feel terrible. Or they get married, and they've put so much hope into another person, we've destroyed that marriage because we expected it to be something that it wasn't going to be. That's why I say a sexual prosperity gospel. We hear prosperity gospel, you think about money, right? If I just pray hard enough, I'm going to get all the money I want. Well, how many of us heard? If I just abstain long enough, I'm going to have this, and it's going to be the sexual prosperity. You see, that pendulum swings. We're all centering around, and it's a good, good idea, but it's not the good news. And we center our sexuality around sexual legalism. If it's not a paradigm of prosperity or, or a sexual freedom, how many of us grew up in a tradition of sexual legalism? Rigid rules, man. You don't wear that. You don't look at that. You don't talk about that. You don't think about that. Get that devil out of you. And we develop this legalism that is not centered around the gospel. Jesus didn't die on the cross so that we would have this new sexual legalism. Paul is not talking about sexual legalism. Again, there were generations that grew up with this idea of being scared straight to being feared into doing the right thing. Rigid rules, compliance. And let's think about legalism for just a moment. In terms of sexual legalism, or any legalism, but in, in this conversation of sexual legalism, we build our sexuality based on that and not breaking rules. What's really at the center of that? Fear? Control? I can raise my kids under a, under a legalism that will hopefully keep them to do the right thing. But they will do the right thing out of fear of dad. They will do the right thing out of the fear of failure. See, legalism is all about fear, fear of failure. Oh, I can't think that, I can't look at that, I can't do that, because, oh, I don't want to mess up. And then when we do mess up, we crush ourselves with shame. Fear of punishment. Oh, I can't do that. I'm going to go to hell. I mean, have you heard that? Some grandma in church would tell you, don't look at that. Don't think that because you're going to burn in hell. I don't know why she sounds like that, but. Or he, maybe a grandpa. Fear of punishment. If you do this, you're going to get diseases. If you do this, you're going to be infertile. If you do this, you're going to get hairy palms. It's ridiculous. But we develop a culture of fear. Fear of punishment, fear of failure, or like I said earlier, fear of man. I'm scared of failing my parents. I'm scared of failing my spouse. I'm scared of failing my uh, pastor, my youth pastor. I'm scared of failing my friends and being such a screw-up. And so we put so much pressure to do the right thing. But I don't see Jesus coming to bring more pressure, more burden, more legalism. What if we centered our sexuality around what Jesus did on the cross? Jesus came and died on the cross so that what? To tell you he loves you. He loves you. Put Jesus at the center of your sexuality and be reminded right now that he loves you. That what he did on the cross forgives you and it saves you. It gives you hope. It gives you eternity gives you a fresh start. Start there for one moment. Just let's think about that for one second. That's our starting point. That's putting the gospel at the center of my life. Now, 
my views on sexuality, my choices with my sexuality, are a response to the fact that Jesus first loved me. Not that I first loved him, not that I did it right, not that that love is going to go away if I make one little mistake, but let me think for a moment the choices I'm about to make in response to the gospel. As a response of honoring the one that died for me, died for you. And when we think about the gospel, the gospel is countercultural. Because the gospel compels us to bring all areas of our life under submission and surrender to the cross. Right? The gospel compels us. Surrender your sin. Surrender your life. Surrender and obey. Surrender your marriage. Surrender your kids. Surrender your paradigm. Surrender your thoughts. Surrender your sexuality. How many of you think that that is countercultural? Our culture and our, our legalism and our prosperity gospels and our egos, they all want control and they all want you to say, you stay in control, you do you. And the gospel compels us to a posture of vulnerability, a posture of honor, a posture of submission. And so to stop and say, am I willing to submit my sexuality at the foot of the cross? And that is a big question. And I say it's big because that includes a lot of different things. That is not just your future choices. Am I willing to submit and, and allow my life to be shaped by the gospel? Okay, that, that does include my future choices this week. Yes. Am I willing to allow Jesus to dictate and lead and guide what I do later this week? That's part of it. But am I also willing to bring my sexual past, my mistakes, my confusion, Am I willing to bring my trauma? Some people have trauma and pain and abuse and hurt. Am I willing to bring that to the foot of the cross? There are, am I willing to bring my paradigms, my convictions, what I think is right? Jesus, this is the way I see it. And I'm wincing because that's kind of how it feels sometimes, right? When you're just like, I don't know, man. God's word says this. I feel this. I don't. What do you want me to do? How do you want me to live, to think, to act, to speak? To be shaped by the gospel rather than allow the gospel to be shaped by me. That's a paradigm shift. Will I allow my sexuality to be shaped by the gospel rather than shape the gospel around my sexuality? And I believe I honor Jesus when I surrender my life to the cross, and that includes my sexuality. That includes my confusion. That includes my misunderstandings. That's a gospel-centered sexuality. And we strive to be people who want to Put the gospel at the center of our lives. And as Paul said, and this phrase just rung in my head like a bell all week, to honor Jesus. Honor, right? Your body's not your own. Honor God with your body. Honor him. And I strive to honor Jesus with my choices and my views and my sexuality and my ethics and my understanding of these things. But I need to also understand that I can honor Jesus in how I talk about my sexuality and how I express my sexuality. 
And here's the thing. I live in a world, we live in a world that is going to disagree with us. Isn't that true? There are people in this room right now that disagree with me, I'm sure. I would guarantee it. People will disagree with the fact that I hold to a, a, a conviction of marriage and sexuality and, and, and purity and holiness and all of that. We're going to see it different. How do we talk about those things? How do we express those things? This topic, like I said earlier, is so personal and so tied to identity and emotion and feelings. How do we talk about this in a way where we avoid dehumanizing people? How do we talk about these things where we're not trying to control people and turn them into your projects? I don't want anybody in this room to ever feel like a project. I don't want to conform you into my image. I want to point you to Jesus and allow him to do the work. But we, as Christians, get so caught up in trying to share what we feel is right, we end up losing empathy and understanding for the fact that we're going to disagree with people, and we condemn them, we control them, we dehumanize them. And I, How do we do this like Jesus would do it? With grace and patience and kindness. When I see Jesus with the adultery, adulterous woman, he doesn't turn her into a project. He doesn't change her first. He doesn't convict her first. You know what he does? He shows her grace. He calls her daughter. And that is my prayer for Hub City Church. That this would be a safe place of people of all perspectives and backgrounds and understandings and even lifestyles and orientations to come and encounter Jesus. We might see it differently. You might disagree that I hold to a heterosexual man and wife, husband and wife, excuse me, marriage covenant, exclusive relationship. You might disagree with me on that. At the end of this six weeks, I'm not trying to convince you. I'm just trying to share this is where we stand as a church, but we're going to do so in a way that loves people where they're at. And I want people to know that Jesus loves them. And I want people to know that I love them. Because I believe I honor Jesus when I can love people I disagree with. Let me say that again because that is my heart in this whole series. I believe I can learn to honor Jesus when I can learn to talk with people that I disagree with. And I can learn to love people that I disagree with. We honor Jesus when we love like Jesus would love. He didn't agree with everybody he encountered, did he? But he showed him a grace and a mercy. And so this morning is just that starting point for this, this series that as I'm prepping and preparing, man, this thing is just kind of blowing up into multi-weeks. And I thought it was going to be three weeks, and now it's going to be more. So buckle up. We're going to talk about sex for a while. Not for like the rest of the year, but just for the next few weeks. But can we as a church develop and pursue a gospel-centered sexuality? That's my challenge for us this morning, to put Jesus at the center of our sexuality. Let's pray. Jesus, Jesus, right now we just, we come. Church, would you just put your hands out? in a posture of just surrender. We talked about that. The gospel leads us to a point of surrender. Jesus, 
We are your church. And I pray that we would be a people of grace. We would be a people of patience and kindness and gentleness and love and joy. Jesus, I pray that we would love like you love. May this be a place of grace. May we be a people of grace. I pray for those over these next few weeks that this begins to stir up pain or remorse or regret. God, I pray that this can be a place of healing. Holy Spirit, come and heal your church. Come and restore your people. And as Tyler prayed earlier, God, I pray that we are united. United around you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus, for who you are. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your truth. We put you at the center of our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Tyler's going to come up and send us out into our world here. Excuse me. I'm just making a mess. Um, this topic, I know uh, we're not going to hit every facet of it. And please text those questions in and things like that. But, but I've also got some resources I want to point out, just some books for those that want further reading. Um, I'm not handing these out today, but, but I'm just pointing these out. A variety of different books uh, by various authors. And these folks, uh, both male and female, are, are able to articulate some of what we believe in a way where in this topic you're wondering, like, how do I share what I feel? And how do I articulate, put into words what we're talking about. And so um, some great resources up there, Redeeming Sex by Deborah Hirsch, uh, this author Preston Sprinkle, uh, People to be Loved, Why Homosexuality is Not Just an Issue, uh, Embodied, Transgender Identities and the Church and What the Bible Has to Say. And then Tim Keller and his wife Kathy uh, wrote a book called The Meaning of Marriage. And just some resources I wanted to point you to, not required reading, um, but for those that want to just go further into this topic and dive in, um, or maybe a life group wants to tackle it, you talk about life groups, you know, I just, I, I want to point things out. And uh, that's our heart in all of this. If you want more information on Hub City Church, find us at thehubcitychurch.com. Thanks for listening.